truly for some men, nothing is written unless they write it. Whatever I ask them to do can be done. They think he's a kind of prophet. They do or he does. Do you think I'm just anybody, Harvey? Do you? Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole. In director David Lean's epic masterpiece, Lawrence of Arabia. Uncut and fully restored. Winner of seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. So this is the good stuff. Yeah. The Laugh Podcast. I am one of two hosts the L train over there is two frames. How are you, Mr. Two Frames? Doing well, sir. How are you? Pretty good. What's the hottest you've ever been? Um, 18. <laughs> uh, what's the hottest climate you've ever been in? I uh, did a couple summers in Virginia heat. Uh, Virginia as a, heat? Yeah, is a lifeguard where, you know, you're out in a guard stand in so 101 you, degree heat, right. 90% humidity. With a 40,000 gallon pool in front of you. That you're not in, and you just get to watch. Eventually, you get to dive in it, though. Yeah. So that's the worst heat you've ever experienced. That you just sitting on a lifeguard stand, twirling a whistle for, for hours. Yeah. <laughs> you try to add the hours onto it like that. That's. Oh, I mean, it, it's you one thing cool to be out there though. for like twenty minutes. No. You're not allowed to have a drink. Oh, because that might. Yeah, that distract distract you, you from. No, sleep. you've got to be vigilant. You can't take a sip of water. I bet you in today's climate, or in today's climate, no pun intended, I bet you can. Yeah, probably. I mean, that was pretty I was a roofer. Ooh. Yeah. Hot tar. It's supposedly the worst job you can have. It's the worst profession that you can have. Ranks up there with Bedouin Bedouin, uh, soldier in World War I. It does, yes. Yes, it does. it does. It ties in nicely with our... Tar and sand, yeah. Tar, sand, bullets, and a weird Englishman running around trying to lead you like he's the great messiah. <laughs> We're talking about T. Lawrence. And the film, or the uh, little clip that you heard at the beginning of the show was from the trailer for Lawrence of Arabia. David Lean's 1962 film uh, retelling of... British Englishman T.E. Lawrence's heroic autobiographical account of his Arabian adventure. The greatest movie ever made. You still think that? Yeah. All right. I, I love this film. I was so happy that we had the opportunity to go down to the Narrow Theater in Norfolk mm-hmm. and see this on the big screen. Yeah, for Mal Vincent's Presents. Mm-hmm. This is film critic, 86-year-old film critic that presents these shows. Came in there. Pretty much read the stuff off of Wikipedia, <laughs> got up and left. He had some interesting things to say, though. I didn't know that Marlon Brando was up for the role. Yeah, I hadn't known that. I knew Albert a lot of Finney. other people had been. Albert Finney. Did you know that David Lean directed that Great Expectations from 1946? Yes, but only because I've shown it in my classes for the yeah, last but, five years or so. All right. Well, Alec Guinness is in that. Alec Guinness wanted to be T.E. Lawrence. He played him in a play mm-hmm. production or a stage production, but then he wound up being uh, Omar Sharif or Fazil. 
I don't know. It's going to be really bad with these names. Uh, Alec Guinness played Prince Faisal. Faisal. Isn't that also like a a Russian mouse? Faisal from uh, American Tale? Yeah. Faisal versus Faisal. Oh, all right. All right. I'm the one nailing pronunciations today. No, I don't know if you are. The tables have been turned. (laughs) I didn't mispronounce the word. I didn't even say it. Originally produced in 1962, it was 222 minutes long when it first opened. Mm -hmm. But it was cut down to uh, 35 minutes to a meager 187 minutes. And then it was restored up to 217 minutes in 1989. That's a lot of numbers I just threw out there. Oh, yeah. It's impressive. But now, I think the one that we saw was 247 minutes long. No, no. That would be over four hours. Felt like it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's long. I mean, we definitely saw, I think, the longest cut that they have currently. Maybe it's 228. Apparently, there was some things in one of the cuts that didn't make it into this cut, though. Uh, yeah. so, I, I, I was reading... Um, on the internets about some of the stuff that may or may not have made it in there. I remember the tense. There were some something. scenes that seemed a little different from what I remember, especially at the end. There seemed to be some extra stuff. And generally I could notice it because the sound was slightly off when they went to restore this film and to bring back the parts that were lost. Uh, the audio track had been damaged severely, so they had to redub it. Yeah, I think you told me that before the movie, and then that ruined part of the movie for me. <laughs> so, way to go. Yeah. You just ruined it for anybody that's listening to the show. It's going to go out You have to pay a lot of attention, really. I don't think it's that noticeable. Yeah, but if someone ways. draws attention to something... Isn't that then, what we're supposed to do with a podcast on the I don't film? know. If you point out that someone has a pimple, you can't avoid seeing that pimple when you look at them. Moly, moly, moly. Yeah. Right. Austin Powers. Um, yeah. Molly Russell's wart. Uh, so, this was on my list of shame. It's near the top. How do you feel now that you've seen uh, it? I'm pretty glad I saw it. It wasn't a terrible experience. I don't think it's David Lean's best movie, though. What would you say is his Bridge best movie? Bridge on the River Kwai. I actually saw that a couple years ago and uh, enjoyed that experience. I wish I could have seen it on the big screen. But I don't even think that Bridge on the River Kwai is, you know, I'm not sure if it's a 10. So it's interesting for me to know that you think that this is the best movie of all time. Why? I, I love the cinematography of this film. Um, just it, it was filmed in 70 millimeter. So it's, it's wider than what people think of as widescreen or letterbox. So if you, you if you watch this at home, you'll have black bars on the top and bottom of your television screen. So it's this really wide frame, and they would film these scenes from incredible distances away, 50 yards, maybe 100 yards away. So there are shots in this film where someone rides their camel across the screen, and it takes 30 or 40 seconds. So, I mean, they're, they're traveling a pretty good distance, and... Uh, Sometimes the the shots are the the person moving is maybe in the bottom fifth of the frame. The rest of it is just these amazing deserts. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly scenic. Uh, I guess this was the first movie I watched that I was aware of the filmmaking going on. 
Okay. When did you first see it? Um, 13, 14 years old on PBS. All right. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. This, this had to have been hard to do. So you're impressed with the technical aspects of the film. Yeah. And just, I mean, the story, I think it's a great story. Uh, Herman Melville, when asked, why did you write a story about a whale? He said, you can't tell the greatest story on the back of a flea. I don't think you can tell a great story of a man without some great location. I don't think, you know, some amazing person lives their life as an accountant at a cardboard box factory. Right. Uh, Okay. But, well, I mean, you couldn't tell T. Lawrence's story without setting it in the desert. I know. And I think it's it's a great story. This British guy goes over, helps the Arabs fight the Turks during World War I. Well, it helps me understand why you like Avatar so much. Because that's just what this is. Oh, interesting. It's just going native. Is this is the this is the the alien comes in and leads the troops hmm. onto their victories. It's the first of its of its type, maybe. I don't know. It, it's before uh, Fern Gully. Does does Lawrence go native? Well, the because, movie argues he does. It but, argues both points. But generally, with the people that in these stories where they go native, they fall in love with the native people. I would say he did. Well, Amir Faisal. I would say Lawrence fell in love with the desert mm. more than the people. I think he still had a disdain for these people. Oh, I think he loved Sharif Ali. I think he made some friendships, but overall, I think he was disappointed. In the movie, I. I are you saying are, all right? So this is another point that we can bring up in a minute about whether or not there's, um, you know, the reality or the historiosity mm-hmm. of of the character and how that plays into the movie. But you don't think that the movie itself projects an image of a guy who's in love with people in the movie. I think he's more he in love, love with the land, people. the the sand. Yeah. That for whatever reason, he just he loves this setting. This is where he feels most at home. I mean, you see him; he he feel, he definitely looks like he's more comfortable with himself in the scenes in the desert. When he goes back into civilization, he's around the military bases. He never looks comfortable with himself. Yeah, he never really looks comfortable in the film at all. He's man. a stranger among his own people, but he doesn't really understand himself. He's mm-hmm. a, there's this weird sexual ambiguity that's going on with the character. In terms of his reality, he may or may not have been homosexual. That that's playing into the movie too. I think they're trying to do stuff with that. But I mean, it's very confusing to place him in a comfortable setting at all. I don't ever see him. I don't know if he's ever really happy in the movie. There's a scene after his guide is no longer there, and he's by himself. And he's just wandering through, like, this valley. He seems just very pleased with himself. He's on his little journey. He notices that his voice echoes. Right, okay, right before he, he yeah. hooks up with... Uh, he seems very happy with his place there. There's one scene after he gets... When he first gets the, the robes from the um, Bedouin troops. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it's uh, Sharif. The guy played by Omar Sharif, right? Sharif, Sharif Ali. Ali. I think he gives him a, a set of robes and he puts them on and he runs off or he rides his camel out of the out of the way from the people 
and he starts dancing around, twirling, <laughs> looking at himself. It's the first image of the of the selfie pose. <laughs> so he's holding his knife up to see the reflection of himself, right? And then he meets Anthony Quinn's character. What's his name? Uh, I can't remember that guy's name. I can't remember. Abu his name. or Abda Abu. Abu yeah that guy yeah Yeah. Uh, and then I guess the major conflict of the movie comes out about well it's always alluded to throughout the movie but his his big problem T. Lawrence in getting any traction in the war here is uh, is trying to have some collusion between the tribes Mm mm-hmm so he's facing that, that uh, I guess that tribal distance or the the conflicts that go on. I guess we should probably set up the movie. We didn't really even do that. We just kind of said it was about T. Lawrence, but who's this guy? He was a British officer who um, was given the mission of helping Arab troops fight the Turks during World War One. Um, at first, he wasn't even given much in the way of resources. He was a cartographer at first. He was just a but you know why they picked him? Uh, he had been an archaeologist. Uh, he had traveled extensively around the Middle East. He was actually fairly well known in Arabic circles. A polyglot. Yeah. So he, he, I guess he had some street cred. Yeah, people knew. Uh, he knew sort of lay out of land. Mm-hmm. He had done a bunch of traveling himself alone and like, maybe with one other person. Uh, so they picked him because he had language skills and he was aware of the of the desert, but not to the extent that he came in the, in the movie. They, they don't really do a pretty, a very good job of establishing why they picked him. Mm-hmm. But once he's there, he attains this, uh, sort of godlike Messiah quality. And he, in the movie, they present him as being the, the golden, uh, I don't know, leader that all the Arabs will follow. And they can only they can only kill him with a golden bullet, supposedly. Is that a spoiler? No. He can, and he manages to, in the movie at least, he adopts these feelings about himself, and he begins to think that he's something greater than what he than just a normal man, and uh, he begins to act in such a way so that he puts himself in a lot of danger. He thinks he can do anything he wants. So, I mean, the problem is he has to cultivate this image so that he can get enough troops. But when you're around your own BS long enough, you start to believe it. I think Peter O'Toole himself said something like, I first realized that I was God when I was praying and I realized I was talking to myself. I think that was Peter O'Toole. So, uh, the movie, he was nominated Peter O'Toole for Best Actor. Mm-hmm. I think there were 11 Academy Awards, or no, 10 Academy Awards. 10, there should have been 11, but they forgot to um, put the woman who did all the makeup up for nomination. He didn't win for Best Actor, Peter O'Toole. He lost to Gregory Peck in 1962 for his performance in To Kill a Mockingbird. So comparing, and didn't you just see that film recently? Yeah. So what do you think of the two performances? Do you I agree think with that? Peter O'Toole's performance is better. Um, Gregory Peck is fantastic. 
uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird. I think at the time, his performance would have been even better. I don't think To Kill a Mockingbird has uh, aged particularly well. Yeah, I don't really like that movie that much. Well, just the story as a whole has some horrible flaws, I yeah. guess, in it. It's ridiculous. That, you know, Especially the ending. We don't want to spoil yeah, it. But there's a lot of ridiculous stuff. Uh, if, if you want to see more criticism of the film, Roger Ebert's review on To Kill a Mockingbird uh, helps point out the differences in the time when the film was made versus uh, modern day. Uh, okay. Uh, ideas on, I guess, race relations. That would be fair enough. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, it, it's a shame. Peter O'Toole was nominated a number of times for Best Actor. He never won. They had to give him an honorary Academy Award back in 2003. Um, but I've always loved him. I think he's a great actor. When did he... When did he is he dead? Is yeah, he, he, he passed about two years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would have thought that he was still around, maybe. No, I, I, probably our students would best know him from Ratatouille, where he plays Anton Ego. Oh. The food critic. Oh, okay. That's a good movie. It was a good movie. <laughs> um, he was keen Priam and Troy. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else cur- like more current that he did. That was pretty. Cool. I, I remember him from my favorite year when he was a drunken, besotted old Englishman actor playing some version of himself, and uh, it's, it's a lot like uh, Scent of a Woman. Ooh, love me, Scent of a Woman. Yeah, I'm not sure when Scent of a Woman came out. 1993. So, ten years after the the Peter O'Toole's take on that same story. Hmm. Yeah. It's a good movie. It's funny. Um, so, there's... I don't know. I Well, did you appreciate the the, the filmmaking? Because to me, that's what... I, I, I love all the details of the filmmaking. Yeah, I kind of, but I was I was taken out of it a few times because of that. Because I was thinking all the the whole time that they're in this hideous sandstorm, and you know that it's not uh, CGI'd. Mm-hmm. Then you also, if you're if you're aware of the camera and the technical aspects of the film, you're aware that they're standing in the desert at the same time all these guys are, and uh, the film crew is going on. 1960s trying to you know replicate something in 1915 they're having that same experience oh so. yeah i mean uh there were scenes that they went on for too long the film was melting in the camera yeah uh the, the setup on the shots was horrible it would take forever to uh, set up the shot because you'd have to get the actors in position and then erase all of their footsteps or the camel's footprints. I also understand that um, in terms of the technical aspects of the movie, I think there was it was an eight-month shoot. Yeah, I think it was an eight-month shoot. And it was in the can. They edited it in two months, which is like, the reverse of what normally happens. Well, the, I know they spent a total of 14 months shooting, but they moved halfway through production. They shut down for like two or three months because they moved from Jordan to Spain. They were having so many problems shooting in Jordan. Just it, the technical aspects were so difficult. Um, they had to truck in water from a well that was 150 miles away from where they were shooting. Hmm. That was the closest spot they could get water. Hmm. 
So finally they just went, we got to find somewhere else. So they moved to Spain and that was much easier. Um, I wonder if they moved all the extras. It's a lot of extras in this movie. It's there's a big, s- epic movie. There's a scene where Peter O'Toole is having a conversation with a general, and they walk down a staircase. The, from, the time period from the first shot to the last shot of that conversation is more than a year. It's the same staircase, though, right? I think so, but they it's came similar, back a year later <laughs> to finish it. It's similar to the staircase in Paths of Glory. Hmm. It reminds me of that scene. It's the same sort of uh, interaction between a superior officer and a younger or less qualified, or what not? maybe not less qualified is not the right word. But I was thinking, ah, it's the same sort of angle, same shot, but I don't think it's the same location. Um, I don't know. I, we saw it in, the, like you said, in the narrow theater, which is a sort of a restored theater from the, I would say, the 60s, probably. It's at least that old. Yeah. I had a balcony. And we went with my dad, which was fun. <laughs> but you guys went in ahead of me. I saw an old student of ours mm-hmm. and uh, was talking to her out in the lobby. When I came in, you were sitting in, like, the second to the last row. And I realized that we were so far away from the screen, I would have had a better view of <laughs> of the actual yeah. Screen itself, or the image on the screen, if I had been watching it on my phone. No, no, that's an exaggeration, but... It's pretty close. We, we could have been closer. Yeah, we sat where your dad wanted to sit. If you wanted to move up, why didn't you say so? Well, I did, but I only did it as a, you know... I mean, at that point, it was sort of a done deal, right? But, you know... Sort of minimized the impact of the image. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Super Panavision 70. Yeah. Um, Not very many films were made with Super Panavision. No, but this was also during the time period where they kept changing the film formats and pretty much every major movie company had their own film format because they would try and sell you on it. Come watch Cinemascopes. Come watch Cinerama. um, Well, Cinerama and Panavision were pretty much the same thing. Yeah, but that was always one of the things. Come watch it, you know. But it was also trying the to pull. color saturation is better with Panavision. Well, they're also trying to pull people out of their off their couches mm-hmm. and into the theaters. Uh, the first movie was The Big Fisherman by Walt Disney Studios, <laughs> and then there were only I don't know maybe twenty movies up until 2012. The last one that was filmed. Fully in 70 millimeter was the master. Yeah. Well, I mean, 70 millimeter film is twice as long, twice as twice wide, as, wide yeah. as 35 millimeter film. So it's just, it's much more cumbersome to use. So the image on the screen is actually uh, a re- aspect ratio of 2.2 to 1. So it's almost two and a half times as wide as it is tall, which is important for a movie like. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, where he's trekking through the desert. Um, 2001 was filmed in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> that surprised me. Uh, and then there were a few others, like uh, I think Batman. 
Batman. Parts of Bat, uh, parts of The Dark Knight Rises, and Snow White and the Huntsman actually had selected wide shots. Okay, yeah, that's the IMAX seventy millimeter, yeah. right? But yeah, I mean, it's still. I like that widescreen. I think it adds a lot to it. Uh, David Lean filmed most of the action going from left to right, to so that you always the get journey. Yeah, so you always get this idea that they're progressing. Did you notice when it wasn't going from left to right when they used that? Uh, thinking back, I can notice. A, I can remember a couple of spots because it there was many. yeah. There there were a few times when it was it and it worked thematically because. Uh, his character was sort of out of sorts. Um, it was either he was going back to get Kazim mm-hmm. in the desert, or there was one time before a, a big battle when they were, when they reversed that order. And I think it, I think it was the second time he came back for, after the attack of Akba. Mm-hmm. He came back to Arabia and he had changed again. So the arc of this character is is more like a I don't know a, a amplitude modulation <laughs> graph or something I don't know what you would call that in trigonometry but he goes up and down and up and down and up and he's all over the place the guy's oh, manic yeah. he's having a lot to deal with but no I I like those film choices I couldn't imagine being David Lean and having a say. Let's do another take of that. Just again, some of these setups took hours. Yeah, I don't know and, if they did a whole lot of those retakes. Yeah, some probably. of them. Apparently, they had little plastic water cups, and the wind would blow these and ruin shots. Yeah. the The well scene took like five or six days because it literally took a whole day to set it up to erase all the footprints to get this guy. I think Omar Sharif was like five miles away. Yeah, he has to come in on the camera. So some of these shots, I mean, it just it takes a long time. Uh, clouds may come in and ruin the shot. You know, there's in modern days, if your shot's ruined a little bit, you say, oh, well, we'll just fix that in post-production. We'll CGI the background a little. We can fix all that. Here, you don't have that option. So... Mr. Two Frames thinks this is the best movie ever made because of the technical aspects. Maybe not the story so much. No, I like I like the story. I think it's told in a grand landscape. Okay. I, I'm glad that I watched it. I'm glad it's off my list. <laughs> so I'll never have to watch it again or pretty much think about it. <laughs> uh, but I do think that there's some things that we should talk about in a spoiler section. All right. It's just the ending and then maybe some stuff about the histriosity of the character. So I'd like to make a comparison between this and another British war hero, Alan Turing, and the imitation game. So we should have a spoiler section. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Last year's Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, was about Alan Turing, another famous British war hero in a different sort of way. Uh, some I had some problems with it in terms of its historiosity, mm-hmm. and I have the same problems, I think, with Lawrence of Arabia. 
the movie Lawrence of Arabia. It lessened my appreciation of it, knowing some of the things I knew about Lawrence of Arabia. Comments, Mr. Two Frames? Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, Imitation Game had some problems because they left out parts of Alan Turing's story that I felt were interesting, uh, specifically his suicide. And there is some questions about whether or not his suicide was a suicide, whether it was an accident, or possibly even murder. Now, some people have tried to argue uh, T.E. Lawrence was actually murdered. Supposedly there was a black van around hmm. um, when he was run off the, the road. A-team. Yeah, and then there was some military officer who was there at the scene, and he was apparently told not to mention the black van, but right after he did, he was found shot dead in a back alley a couple weeks all right, later. Yeah, that's all. But that's that's not that's convoluted, like, sort of uh, Internet conspiracy theorist stuff. That's not the kind of stuff that I'm that I'm concerned about. Oh, okay. The kind of stuff that bothers me about the film is where uh, it's the melodrama of the film. It's the story points that come out in the film that tell an interesting tale, but they don't necessarily reveal anything more about the character. And I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that's a personal issue that I just have to deal with with these biopics. Mm-hmm. Or if it's something that's an honest criticism of the movie, should I not let those elements take me out of the movie and just sort of enjoy the movie for what it was? No, I mean, I enjoy the story for what it is. I I think it highlights on his time working for the military in uh, the Middle East. I think some of his early days are interesting. We touched briefly that he was an archaeologist and traveled around extensively. And so that stuff could be be interesting, but... You're, you're not sure. Well, that's the whole thing. If Hollywood was doing this movie nowadays, it would easily be in two parts, maybe three. I could see this being an HBO miniseries. Well, this this probably would be in two. I mean, it would it would they wouldn't put it out in the theaters at two hundred and forty eight minutes. I don't think. No, uh, I don't know what was the last movie of that length. They don't rarely get over three hours. Yeah, I mean, you're, that's Lord of the Rings, maybe, is at the three-hour I don't mark. even think that they went that far, did they? This last Lord of the Rings was the shortest. And by Lord of the Rings, I mean Hobbit. To me, it's all the same thing. Oh, but. really? Um, I'm trying to think of the, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford was probably two hours and 40 minutes. But that's yeah. about the max. Well, once you get past the three-hour mark, you really cut down on the number of showings you can do in a day. All right, so this movie, though, the one that that we saw, the stuff that took me out of the movie that's not related to um, anything other than the story that's in the film and not necessarily realistic in his life were the parts where he goes almost insane in the desert believing that he is sort of a messiah. Now, I understand he kind of went native mm-hmm. and he loved Arabia and he loved that idea of them having their own rule. And I don't really see any evidence that would suggest that he thought that he couldn't be killed except with a gold golden bullet. And if he ever said that, from my experience, now I haven't, you know, I I didn't read The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I saw I read parts of it. But I think he had a very more practical approach to his life, and I think he realized that he was a 
a decent leader. And there were some complexities there, but I don't really see the easy sort of maniacal way that they went about presenting him in the movie as being anything. I mean, that, that part rang so false to me that I was just, eh, nah. Well, I mean, is he just being modest in the seven pillars of wisdom and the people saw him as being this great hero and yeah, but he, I don't he just think tries that, to obfuscate in the books. He doesn't want to talk about that. He doesn't want to aggrandize himself. Uh, I don't know. I, I I don't really know the source material for uh, the book other than the Seven Pillars of Wisdom and then contemporary information that they had about. I mean, I know Lawrence's brother did not like the film and he refused to allow the film to uh, use the title Seven Pillars of Wisdom for it. They had to call it Lawrence of Arabia and apparently the guy even went on a speaking tour and spoke out against the movie and its inaccurate depiction of his brother. I'm surprised that he has any rights to that, any claims to those rights because uh, from what I know, T. Lawrence was pretty much in uh, debt, like severe debt when he died. He'd only started making some money back through speaking, but Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 20 years or so after the events in the in the movie when he died, and um, and he had fallen on financially hard times. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is the book was published after his death, or at least he had done a small printing run of Seven Pillars of Wisdom for friends and family, and he oh. did not want the book published uh, mass market. And after his death, it was there have been a couple of plays that preceded this movie. Okay. So maybe, you know, there was some money generated. Same plays that Alec Guinness was in as yeah, like T. Lawrence. So, you know, it seems like, uh, T. Lawrence has been a very big British folk hero. Right. Hero. And that's kind of why I wanted to draw a comparison between him and Alan Turing, because it seems like people were accepting, more accepting of him. At least society was more accepting of his, um, strange sexual peccadillos. Uh, T. Lawrence's I'm talking about. Whereas apparently Turing or Turing had a uh, very different experience in the when did he die? 19. I thought it was in the 50s. Yeah. Or maybe late 40s. Late, yeah, late 40s, early 50s. Turing was chemically castrated by the government. Whereas they felt that T. Lawrence was able to sort of, I think he threw that Dowd character in people's faces. Like he brought them to mm-hmm. little, you know, trips with him. His, his little, uh, Arabian pool boy, or whatever you want to call it. And he just kind of had him and they just kind of accepted him for what he was. It wasn't and even that just fellow, some middle Eastern custom that they could yeah, write some, off and not have to deal with. Yeah. Or even if it, I think what most people, contemporaries of his and people that try to uh, get a handle on his sexuality, they suggest that he was just asexual. Could be. I think his brother might be one of those kinds of people. I mean, the big thing is no one really knows. There is no definitive proof where with Turing, we do know he was a homosexual. He spoke um, out for his rights, and that was one of the reasons why the British government came down so heavily upon him. Well, he came down upon himself in that sense. Like he he wanted the the hormonal 
temples. Well, I mean, he kept taking them even after. But he was he all, didn't have to. Apparently, he was um, out of the closet when he worked at the university, and then after there was the break-in at his home, he didn't try and hide the fact that he was homosexual from the authorities. He kind of flaunted it. Do you think he, so, so they were they were forced to deal with him more so. Uh, that's that's what some of the stuff I've heard. Not that that makes the British government's actions right. Well, it just seems like the Brits have a very strange relationship with homosexuality in general. I mean, I think I'm it was not, illegal up until like the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, it seems very. But but then again, there's the the sort of British foppish guy that mm-hmm. I mean, they're often associated with that sort of lifestyle. A lot of the gay guys I know were British. Yeah. Not all of them, but it's just kind of weird. To me, it just doesn't seem like it's, it would have been that big of a deal. Now, then, when I watched Lawrence of Arabia with you, and I hadn't seen it in years, I, always before I'd never really noticed all of the flamboyantness. The nuance? Oh, not yeah, the nuances it, it, of his Yeah, system. I just thought, oh, I just thought he was kind of a weird guy. Oh, well, yeah, that strange haircut. But that this time, watching it, it just... It, it seemed very different. It seemed magnified. Maybe it was because it was magnified on the screen. Or maybe you had a different mindset going yeah. into it. Um, Michael, or no, uh, Fassbender in Prometheus, the role he plays uh, David mm-hmm. as the AI, he says he models that, his look and his uh, behavior after Lawrence of Arabia, after that, uh, well, at least what Peter O'Toole Used to, and Piero Tool looks a lot like Lawrence Raybill, although he's a lot taller, I guess. Um, so that sort of British effete, sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of twirling around in the sand <laughs> on pure, doing pirouettes of happiness is, uh, is not a, I, I don't think it's a sort of a stereotype that people, yeah, but I don't think that's what makes. Lawrence interesting. I don't think that's why he was a great soldier. I, I do think he was a bit of an oddball, but not because of his homosexuality. I just think he was an oddball. And one of those, th- or that's why he was able to go and do great things. Someone who's normal and well-adjusted isn't going to go and spend their life in the desert. They're not going to go and do great things. We talked about that some with American Sniper and Chris Kyle. And, you know, some people say, well, he wasn't the nicest guy. You know, he was a little hard-nosed and could be rude and gruff. Well, he's a special forces guy. He kind of has to have that chip on his shoulder in order to get his missions accomplished. I think part normal of the, people don't do great things. I guess is my point. Well, they—I mean, some normal people do great things. Like Winston Churchill wasn't necessarily abnormal. I thought, he's another great war hero. I thought some people thought he had mild Aspergers. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't affect an abnormality. I guess if he fought against, if, if anything, he would have presented himself as being more normal in public. Mm-hmm. But then again, that's sort of revisionist stuff going on. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of normal people that have done great things. I know what you're saying in terms of like. I, I don't uh, there think is something that Turing did what he did because him. he was gay. I don't think Lawrence of Arabia was able to achieve what he did. No, because I he don't. Was gay. No, I'm not saying I, I that. I think it's an interesting <laughs> side note to their character. And right, to look and at them even, as fully formed people. I don't think that it's important for the for the movie either way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there there's some stuff in terms of 
how he goes crazy may or may not have gone crazy, may or may not have wanted to go back. Although that's pretty documented that he didn't want to go back after his first tour because he had a really hard time getting through, uh, what is it, the Sinai Desert mm-hmm. when he actually made it to um, Egypt. Cairo, I guess, is where he had to go. He didn't want to go back. And when he went back, they convinced him to go back to fight again. He had changed a lot. And I like that. I mean, I like seeing the arc. I just didn't like the presentation of the arc so much in the movie. There's a couple of key points, and in spoilers, it's okay to talk about it, but the guy that he kills, like, Mm -hmm. on the day, like, hours before they're supposed to attack the the very first Akbar, Uh he actually killed him, like, two years before that. So it's or months before that, a couple. You know, it was in October or something, mm-hmm. uh, in the year previous to uh, to that action, and yeah, it created a conflict for him, but it wasn't a melodramatic thing that happens as a plot point. Boom, boom, boom. The guy that he went back into the desert Just to see. save is the guy that he winds up having to kill. Well, and the Arabs didn't think Lawrence was awesome for saving this guy. They thought he was stupid, that it was a reckless mm-hmm. chance. In, that the movie, in the movie, they don't. In, they, in the movie, the movie they, they think it's great. Yeah, they think that he's, But in real life, they thought, this yeah. is just reckless and stupid. They didn't reward him with his white wardrobe, which apparently, I read, gets thinner as the movie goes on, as he loses his sense of self. And what he's doing, his wardrobe becomes thinner and thinner. Oh, that's a symbolic thing? That's apparently, that's why I read it. I read it after we watched the movie, so I wasn't able to look for it. But apparently towards the end, those the robe he's wearing is almost sheer. Huh. Um, the presentation of Sharif Ali. Mm-hmm. His, uh, I, I, who's that, Omar Sharif that plays it? Mm-hmm. I thought that he was too stereotypical and there wasn't enough of a a motivation for his change of heart. There's supposed to be some suggestion that there was a relationship between the two of them that extended beyond mere admiration. But in the movie, the first time you see him in the movie, he shoots some guy. (laughs) He's like, I don't have, you know, uh, you can't drink from my water. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, O'Toole, or uh, Lawrence Arabia won't give him his, his name, but then they become the greatest of friends later on. And that character, Sharif Ali, is the one who condemns T. Lawrence for being so bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be any reason for him to become a heartless, cruel, mur- to have been a cruel, heartless murderer. At the beginning of the movie, and then after the intermission, he comes back, and all of a sudden, he has crises, crises of conscience. No, I agree. So, or conscience. But apparently, also, that Sharif Ali character was a combination of many individuals that Lawrence worked with. And just to simplify the plot and the number of characters who come in and out. That's the problem that I have with these biopics. Especially wide-sweeping epics like this that take place over, what, two and a half years? Mm Mm-hmm. And then they go back and forth from London to blah, blah, blah. So they're they're less successful. That's why a movie like Selma was a little bit more successful because it dealt with an isolated period of time, even though it had some of those same historical problems. So 
I don't know. I think a movie about T. Lawrence where you just take one day in his life, you know, could be an an interesting movie. You wouldn't be able to touch on all of those themes, but you could still. Well, I agree. You couldn't make this film today. I mean, we've talked about numerous reasons. I think your approach would be interesting in some more modern filmmaking way. One of the reasons why I love this film is because it holds this timeless place in history and it could only have been made when it was. So I'm glad it's not on the list of shame anymore. Yeah. I I need to start working on mine. You should see, uh, up. No, is that where you're going to start with up? I don't know where this, I think this is like second or third on my film, but on my list of shame, don't say it. Don't say I have to go see them. No, I mean that's no, that's up Star to you. Wars, you, no, you no. That's a, that's enough in the cultural zeitgeist anyway. You don't even have to. I don't think you need to go see them. Plus, wearing future ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're gonna have to go see the next one, and you're gonna like it too. <laughs> Just telling you. Or, or, or no dinner, no supper, yeah. no dessert, and you'll like it. Um, the movie that I that said that was at the top of my list is uh, Ben Hur. And my experience with this movie doesn't make me want to see that movie anymore. Ben-Hur is very epic. Much yeah, I know. That's my point. It's, it's, it's more epic. sweeping in locales. It, that makes it less interesting to me. All right. It's another great one. Right. We'll see when the Narrows playing that one. Head so on. that's our review of Lawrence of Arabia. That's our first laugh classic. Are we going to call them classics? I don't know. We got we got to come up with some name. People should write into us with what we should where call they, this. Where would they write into us if they were going to do that? Uh, Podcast at gmail.com. If they want to email us, if they want to tweet us, we're at the Laugh Podcast, or we're even on Facebook uh, at the Laugh or the Laugh Podcast. They can search for. Uh, okay. So and was it Facebook.com slash the Laugh Podcast? Yep. All if one they word. want to go directly there, uh, and, they can go to our website, thelaughpodcast.com. We'd love to hear what they thought of Lawrence of Arabia and also what we should call these classic reviews. Right. If they've got any classics. good names for them. Um, if you went there to that website, would you find out, would you be able to find out how much farther ahead I am than you in the uh, spring box office yes, challenge? It's up there. Uh, the spring box office challenge is a foot. I'm millions of dollars ahead of you. You are millions. millions. Uh, you had the pick of the last ride. And the longest ride. Longest and the last ride, whatever. <laughs> I'm not riding it. Uh, it made it right, 13 man. million last week. Well, it doesn't so matter. You're now. up 13 million. 13 million dollars. And I'm about to go flying ahead of you because I've got Paul Blart 2. Yeah, it hasn't gotten much of a good mall critical cop, response. Copying in a casino, I think. I don't think he mall cops here. It's it's a uh, it's got zero percent on the Rotten Tomatoes right now. That's all right. I think it'll easily make 50 million this weekend. 50. Fifty million. Wow! All right. So I'm very. Do either excited. one of us have? I don't think I tried. I almost picked child twenty or forty four. I picked child twenty four. It's good. Thing I almost you picked child forty four. It's only in five hundred theaters, yeah. though. We did find one, and I think we're going to go watch it this weekend, and that will be laugh thirty eight, where we do a review of it. Oh, that's a shame. It couldn't be laugh forty four. If you want, we can hold off a month. No, no, no. Or three weeks. No, I'm really excited about this. Yes. So that'll be Laugh 38. Also, next week, we'll have another uh, Wii edition talking about the movies that come out. Yeah, Yeah, coming out. It's good stuff. Um, So, a 
according to T. Lawrence, this is after, in the beginning of the film, when uh, he sort of sets himself on fire with a match. Yeah. To convince someone else to do the same thing. G. Gorn Liddy, most famously. Yeah. No, that's not the person he tries to convince. He tries to convince, convince William Potter. He says, the trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. <laughs> For Mr. Two Frames over there. It's been a pleasure. I'm the L-Train. Pox at Bodum, everybody. There be dragons. So last year's film, The Imitation Game, had another British hero, Alan Turing, and uh, there were some questions. Should I start again? Because of the bang. Nice. Thank you. (laughs) Custodians. Oh, yes. Good stuff. Last year's uh, Alan Turing's auto biopic. No. Last year, 